Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Today I have on the program Dr. Christopher Key Chapel, who is Doshi Professor of Indic and Comparative Theology and the Director of um, the Masters of Arts in Yoga Studies at Loyola Marymount University. Hello, Chris, and welcome to the program. Hello, good to be with you, Raj. So, Chris, as I mentioned in our email correspondence, the podcast um, has really grown um, really truly far beyond what I expected uh, in terms of interest in Hindu studies on behalf of the public. Um, so we're diversifying a bit. We're, we're broadening the, the scope of, of, of um, new books to really new developments, trends, um, thought leaders. You know, we're really aiming to take the pulse uh, of the field of Hindu studies or more broadly, um, the study of Indian religion, including Jainism, Sikhism, uh, Islam in India. And so um, you've had a, a fascinating and I would say impactful career. Um, and in many ways, you are redefining what we may think of as Hindu studies or the study of Indian religion um, in some of the programs you're developing. So could you say a little bit about what you um, notice in the field or could you comment on sort of the, the backdrop against which you're developing your new programs? Yeah, I think that the field has been unmoored in some ways and that there are competing voices, competing methodologies that are beginning to see the possibility of moving into a complementarity. So for instance, there's a new category in higher ed that's emerged in the last few years called Engaged Learning. And it provides a little bit of a a really nice antidote to the difficulties and the problems of what some people identify as cultural appropriation. And what I'd like to think that we're able to do through our study of Hinduism and really taking a cue from those who invited the world in, including Swami Vivekananda, including Mahatma Gandhi, those who said, we have something to offer to the world, come, learn, be transformed. And this certainly had a profound effect on the development of American pragmatism. If we look at the writings of William James, if we look at the work, the great work of um, Alfred North Whitehead, we see this interest in an integrated whole person approach. Uh, John Dewey as well, the experience of art is uh, at its foundation, a very yogic approach to aesthetic experience. And by from a young age, immersing myself within the study of language, within the performance and the learning of yoga practice, meditation practices from various traditions, 
ethical awareness and application as informed by Ahimsa, Satya, Asteya, Brahmacharya, and Aparigraha, that all of this moves toward the elevation of the whole person in a way that requires quite literally body, mind, and affect. And the 20th century, higher education was all about information. And these tools of computer searches have made information so 20th century and prior. And that the remaining task for the educator is to find and apply tools building on information, but lead to transformation. And in a Gandhian sense, that requires transformation of self, and it requires transformation of society at large. So yeah, this is the project. And I'm gifted through my university to have 150% support. Our mission statement is about the education of the whole person, is about faith in service of justice. And in this reality of interreligious dialogue, we are actually creating space and occupying space like had been outlined by Swami Vivekananda, by Mahatma Gandhi. Now, would you say this um, transformative, sort of immersive learning, um, would you say that this um, applies particularly to your institution and the programs you're developing? Or would you say that this actually is or ought to be the mandate of the academy? And what I mean by that is, um, what if one just say, look, uh, the academy's job is to understand things um, scientifically, empirically, passively even. It's about information. It's about understanding how the world works more than becoming a different, perhaps better kind of person. So what would you say about that tension in terms of whether it's across the board? Well, I think we can trace it back really to the emergence of early childhood education some 40 years ago. And right at that uh, with the dawn of feminism arose the need, what do we do? We have women working outside the home and these brilliant people from Quaker tradition, a place called Pacific Oaks here in Southern California, really pioneered how to best create developmentally appropriate education. And the crash in violent crime, Um, We have a program in the United States called Head Start. I think the crash in violent crime can be tied to these amazing educators of young children that began to deal primarily and right up front from the age of really infancy and toddlerhood into those preschool years of use your words, identify your feelings. And as this philosophy of education through osmosis made its way into the language, and if we think of some of the great originators, uh, such as Margaret Mead and uh, Bateson, who sort of laid out this, this project of really 
doing everything that we can to bring forth the best that a human can become. About 20 years ago, there was at the elementary level, but more sort of at the middle school and high school level, the emergence of what is called service learning in the United States. And people began to take seriously the value of volunteer work the value of going into elder communities, the value of doing environmental cleanups hands-on. And most universities and colleges in the United States have fully developed service learning opportunities. And most have requirements. We have flags that our core courses must uh, carry that include engaged community volunteer work that speaks to immersive experience. And as this was rolling out, um, again, some 20 years ago, I'd been in higher ed for um, almost two decades by that point, um, I was right there and signed up and got my students out into the yoga centers and got the yoga centers involved with thinking about their connections with ecology. And at the same time, really looking at the broad issues that surround immigration, that surround indigenous peoples, that surround race relations and using yoga and meditation and really the legacy of Gandhi, who was himself informed by the abolitionist movement as part of the transcendentalists that had so inspired him, Emerson and Thoreau in his, um, in his early years back even in South Africa, that all of this, I think, has sort of conspired in a good way to create a vision for what is possible with self and society that calls us to really get involved, to really wake up to ourselves and what's going on in the world. And do you feel then that this ethos, this impulse should be the hallmark of the academy in general, or do you think it should be in certain areas? No, I think in, at all levels, and some of my most profoundly connected students have been engineers. And some of the work they have done as undergraduates, uh, bringing clean water projects to Africa, bringing waste disposal to Bangalore, really thinking about improving society, doing what they can, and again, business, some amazing ideas are flourishing. And part of the beauty of the liberal arts education that is the direct legacy of William James is that every liberal arts student in the United States has to study the sciences and every science student has to study philosophy, literature, and the humanities. So this needs to infuse everything. And as one of my mentors, Thomas Berry has said, the entire academy must be transformed to meet the challenges of so much degradation of the environment and so much loss of intimacy that has been brought about through this 
consumer culture. So tell us uh, a little bit more specifically about uh, this piece of the academy that you've transformed. Tell us perhaps about, uh, you know, some listeners may be surprised that there is such a thing as a master of arts in yoga studies. What is this? What does it entail? How did it come about? Okay. Um, I've been really blessed to A, be gifted with just a lot of energy from birth and B, to be sort of on the ground level of the creation of the fields of religion and ecology, the academic study of yoga, and be part of really the American academic inquiry into the Jaina tradition. So I'll take them a little bit one at a time. And back in the 1980s, I remember going to my very first academic sort of party. And I had just been hired to teach part-time at Stony Brook University. And our chairperson welcomed me. I was 25 years old. I just had my PhD. I, was as, I still had acne. I was so nervous. And he was such a scary man because he's so smart. And he went on to become Dean of Theology at Boston University. University. But I, I opened the door and I said, oh, hi, Bob. And he said, so your dissertation is done. So what's your next project? And I just stammered. 1980, and I said, ah, and I said, I want to do nonviolence and the environment. And that's what launched me into, and it was the summer of the red tide. And there's two types of red tide. One is a naturally occurring algae. And the other, and this was a tragedy on Long Island, was all of this medical waste just was washing up on the beaches, syringes and just bags of blood products. And the beaches all had to be closed. And this was sort of symptomatic. It was also the summer of Three Mile Island and the meltdown of the nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania. So putting that stuff together uh, led to, and I remember the first time I was at a, a meeting at Xavier University giving a talk about Hinduism and ecology, and people were laughing. No one was making the connection between worldview, ethics, and this very pressing problem. And the problem had been identified so many years prior, 1960 with um, Silent Spring, Rachel Carson. And this was 1980, 20 years had passed. There'd been one book in the Christian faith that was done by John Cobb. So I got involved and wrote a book called Nonviolence to Animals, Earth and Self. And this connectivity, as I said, between worldview and ethics and in the case of that book, um, the issues that I explored were end-of-life issues, were animal treatment issues, were environmental issues writ large. And then this eventually um, put a small group of us in good stead to start a series of conferences. We published 10 books out of Harvard University Center for the Study of World Religions. And I remain um, part of this core group that is at Yale University, the Forum on Religion and Ecology. 
and I've helped with many dissertations and have continued publishing in this area. So then um, I'll switch the order a little bit. Part of that fascination with nonviolence brought me to learning as much as I possibly could about Jaina tradition. And at that time, 1980, it was only a few months after Pabhanav Jaini, the Buddhist scholar from UC Berkeley had published The Jain Path of Purification. So few people, and there'd only ever been one dissertation written in the United States of America on this fantastic tradition. He was literally hit by a bus and killed in India. And I invited out Professor Jaini to Stony Brook, and he told me, there's a lot to explore here, and you need to meet the people. And I did. And Michael Tobias uh, had, some years later, created this incredible documentary called Ahimsa. He just zoomed into my summer graduate seminar on Jain yoga. And eventually, I made my way to India and have had the blessing of taking darshan from so many leaders, both monastic men and women, lay people, men and women, who are transforming this tradition and adapting it to be responsive to the world's problems. And as most people know, this is literally the tradition that wrote the book about what it means to be nonviolent. And I have a deep affection for the philosophy and have developed just remarkable relationships. And I remember sitting in Schaumburg, Illinois, about 1994. And every couple of years, several thousand giants will assemble in North America. We sat around a table and I said, what can we do for you? What, how can academia serve your needs? And recall, this is a tradition that was slow to move out of India. Many became involved with business in East Africa in the 50s and 60s. And with Idi Amin, uh, many people in Africa felt they had to move to England to save their lives. And then eventually, and with the opening through the civil rights legislation of 1965, immigration started. And then some 20 years later, they began to organize and to open temples. And they asked me, what can we do? And I said two things. One, look to how your Jewish colleagues in the medical profession have managed to create a minority culture that lasts and lasts and lasts. And my children's friends, they have to learn Hebrew. They go every Wednesday for years and they have this great ceremony, a bar mitzvah, a bat mitzvah. The bat mitzvah was invented in Cincinnati as an American adaptation. There was a great proclamation in 1848 about how do we as immigrants keep our tradition and integrate into the broader society. And Jews have done an amazing, amazing job at this. And sure enough, they listened to that and they created 
this American phenomenon called the Pachala. And twice a month here in Southern California, 500 children descend and young people descend upon this beautiful complex they've built out in Buena Park. And these kids know why they're vegetarian. These kids learn the fundamentals of their core language that their grandparents still speak. And they are given the tools to negotiate a culture that might otherwise see them as totally other. And they've learned the dignity of what it means to be an immigrant, to retain identity, and to claim their value as really in their case, they think they're really cool and, and ahead of things because they're vegetarian and because they're so environmentally sensitive. So that was one, work with the kids. The other was pay attention to higher ed. And through the initiatives that um, have been started, there are now 10 endowed professorships and chairs of giant studies. And from the beginning, I've been an advisor to a program in India, the International School for Jain Studies, that invites in professors, invites in graduate students, invites in school teachers, and gives anywhere from three to six weeks of immersive experience. Living in Jain temple compounds, visiting every morning the temple, hearing lectures from lay and religious leaders of the tradition. And we've literally grown from maybe three or four of us, there were about a small number that met at Amherst College, and I think it was 1993-1994, convened by John Court. And now there are dozens of people who have really focused on this amazing tradition. So much more remains to be done. That's number two. The number three is yoga. And I'm gonna be a little bit self-confessional here that I went for a physical when I was in high school and the, I come from a very small town, Avon, New York, 2,700 people. I live five miles outside on a farm and the physician had me stand up, turn around, traced my backbone and said, whoa, how are you doing? And he was sort of pushing in the direction of maybe you're gonna need a full body cast. And my father who had had an experience with back issues said, Chris, do you hurt? I said, no. So he said, just wait. So when I was 15, this wonderful book had come out called Be Here Now. And I saw these yoga poses in the back. So I sort of tried them. And then I went to a yoga class in, up in the city in Rochester, New York. And I started doing yoga every day. And it was slow and steady. And it took a little bit of body work. And it took a lot of self-reflection, a lot of emotional work as well. And I began to realize that we hold responsibility for whatever it is we're given, including our body. And then I went to college 
And in college, first at Buffalo, I met this young woman from Long Island who said that she did yoga and that she had a guru from India. And would I like to come down and visit? And I said, yes. So Thanksgiving, I traveled from Western New York State all the way out to Massapequa in Amityville and met a woman called Dharani Anjali Inti and transformed my life, transferred university. My girlfriend came down, we married a year later. And for 12 years, we had an utterly immersive yoga training alongside our university training. And my wife and I both threw ourselves headlong into the study of the Sanskrit language. I also learned Tibetan and worked at a research center that required both Sanskrit and Tibetan skills. And I had, by the time I finished undergraduate, I had some 30 hours uh, reading primary materials in Sanskrit and Tibetan, double major in religious studies and comparative literature. And the ashram is where it really happened though. She had trained in India in the 1940s and 50s in Calcutta, and her family was Assamese tribal, the Mishnah tribe, and had relocated. And then when America opened for Indian students, she'd studied in the United States and had settled with her family. She married um, a Jewish guy from Brooklyn and they settled on Long Island. She began teaching first in adult ed and it was, it was so great. And then the university students in the midst of this ashram said, what more can we do? So we did a full year, once a week, study of the Sankhikarika. We were always studying the Yoga Sutra. We ended up doing a seven year translation, word by word, commentary by commentary, comparing all the available translations of the Yoga Sutra. And this became really the ground and the foundation of what I do in academia. So when, after 12 years and the birth of our first child, and I was offered a job in Los Angeles, I didn't even know that Los Angeles was the home of motion pictures. I mean, it was, I, I was such a New Yorker, uh, but I moved out here and I said, wow, this is sort of cool. I think I might stay and settling in our birth of our second child. And then yoga, if you might recall, went through three major phases. The first, well, maybe four. First was transcendentalist, read about the word, read the Bhagavad Gita, thought it was probably a good idea. Then Emerson and Thoreau and others. Second was Swami Vivekananda came and from 1893 up until 1920, a number of teachers came to America, including Paramahansa Yogananda. 1920, racism reared its ugly head. Immigration was cut off to all people of Indian origin. Paramahansa Yogananda got in with papers just before the door was slammed shut. And here in Southern California, he created an enduring community from that period forward supplementing and complementing the various Vedanta societies nationwide that have been built up by the disciples of Swami Vivekananda. So then we go to civil rights, 1965, 
And that's a full 45 years later, two generations later, the Swamis can come back. The woman who became my guru was able to come to America. And that second wave, and there was only a handful, and they all knew each other, Swami Rama, Swami Vishnu Devananda, Swami Satchidananda, Amrit Desai, uh, Grani Anjali, the woman amongst them, uh, started these communities. And they were um, first-generation people arriving from India, direct transmission. And it was very popular in the late 60s and through the 70s. Then in 1979, Jonestown happened. The FBI got involved. Public culture turned its back on yoga. And in the Reagan years, to be meditative was so uncool. You had to have big hair and lots of necklaces, male or female, and drive the right car. And that lasted for about 15 years. And then in the 1990s, as these other gurus are sort of fading from the scene because they're sort of timing out. But what happened was a new thing uh, took place where these young people would go from America and embed themselves. And the rise of Krishnamacharya lineage yoga occurred. Some would study with his successor, Patabi Joyce in Mysore. Some would go to um, Madras, now Chennai, and study with his son, Deshikachar. And some would go to Pune and study with Mr. Iyengar. And now this physical yoga rose to prominence mixed with an utterly new culture. Our gurus were all nonprofit and very philosophically, theologically grounded. These new yoga studios were formed as profit-making businesses and then came up with this, it's not exactly, well, it is a little bit, but how do they pay their bills? With teacher trainings. And then the Yoga Alliance formed in response to that. And one of my colleagues is one of the co-founders of both Yoga Alliance and the International Association of Yoga Therapists. And all of a sudden, there is this explosion of interest in this tradition that had gone dormant for almost 15 years, gone quiet. So a group of people here in Los Angeles talked to me and said, hey, you actually know something. You know, we may be able to stretch and we sure look good, but I think you actually, like, you can help us. So I started right here um, in this space, a study group that convened for six years, and we met every third Wednesday night, and we chanted the Yoga Sutra, and we had people from the Vedanta Society, we had people from the Shivananda Yoga Vedanta Center, we had disciples of Amici, we had disciples of uh, Guru Ma'i, Chidvalasananda, we had disciples of all of those other gurus that I had mentioned, Yogananda, Krishnamacharya's disciples, and so on. And we ended rather auspiciously on September 13th, 2001. And we'd all sort of staggered in with the full weight of the collapsed Twin Towers 
on our psyches. And the stakes got higher. Okay, the importance of not othering, and recall the invasion of Iraq, recall the bombing of Afghanistan, recall the aftermath. We're still living with that almost 20 years later. And I said, what do we need? We need peace of mind. How do we do this? We do this through the body. So out of that, arose a certificate program, uh, launched January 2002, um, 20 hours of Sanskrit, 20 hours of the Yoga Sutra, 10 hours of the Bhagavad Gita, 10 hours of the Upanishads, 10 hours of the Sankhikarika, 50 hours of electives in Jainism and Buddhism and other um, epic Mahabharata studies and Ramayana studies, Yoga Vasishta studies. And from that um, beginning, uh, other certificates came, the yoga therapy certificate, yoga and ecology, a very important relationship with the Green Yoga Association back in the O's, and eventually yoga in schools. And I had gone in the 90s to my dean and said, you know, we have all these incredibly talented, educated qualified people in yoga, we need to have a graduate degree. And my deans laughed. And I went to another dean and I went to another dean and then I just stopped. And then because we had graduated so many hundreds of people with these various certificates, a different administrator came and said, you know what, we should really build on all of these people that you've gathered and we should offer a graduate degree. And I said, oh, wow, you know, that's a good idea. And I started the process. And it takes five years to create a new academic program, at least with all the accreditation requirements at our institution. And we opened our doors in 2013. We're welcoming our eighth cohort, people from all over the world. And believe it or not, we're actually finding an increase in enrollment because it's all online now. And we've been online accessible since day one. So we've been um, responsive and prepared to this shift in higher ed and the, the virtuality of it all, which has some virtue. So that's how it happened. And along the way, as a scholar, I've published more than 20 books, single authored five of them. The new one, I think we wanna talk about a little bit. And I've given so many talks, published so many articles and book chapters, but that's what professors are supposed to do. Quite the journey, quite an impactful and transformative journey, transformative probably both for you and your circumstance. Um, so in terms of your book, uh, your most recent book and your scholarship in general, I think it would make sense to have a deep dive. We'll have a part two where we can look at the book closely as we do uh, typically on this program, and then also talk about the broader strokes of your scholarly contribution to the field. Um, but let's stay with this, this this sort of fascinating initiative of uh, the Master of Arts in Yoga Studies, um, uh, both because of its specific features uh, and also because of its implications for possibilities in higher ed. Um, 
let, let's maybe start with the specific and talk about well, who 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 qualifies for this program? Who is this for? Uh, you know, how does one uh, get into this program, and and how long does it last? Okay, so we designed it for people with a bachelor's degree in any field with a serious commitment to learn about yoga. And what we have welcomed, the people who come into our program have business backgrounds, they have arts backgrounds, they have philosophy background, they have really, you name it, we could probably dig up a student who has walked into our program and flourished. And what the students do for this uh, period of either two or three years, they can either take the fast track, which is a full two years, or they can stretch it out over a third year. They can also add another year to qualify in yoga therapy, but they do three semesters of Sanskrit language. So they, through shlokas of the Bhagavad Gita, learn the basics of Sanskrit grammar, and then they do a semester of the Yoga Sutra following those two semesters. And some of them will, as adult learners, just continue. And uh, because all of our programs started in continuing education, I continue to teach in continuing education. And I have for 20 years now convened a Sanskrit translation group. The text that we're working on now is the sixth century Jain yoga text called the Yoga Bindu. And um, we read it, we talk about it, we look at the grammar, we chant it. It's great fun. So Sanskrit, foundational and important. I learned when I was in high school that in order to really get into a different culture, you really have to know the syntax, you have to know the vocabulary. And I've had the benefit and the beauty of studying probably a half dozen languages over my lifetime. And not at all embarrassed at how slow I am at each and every one of them, but I just know this thing happens with the way that you perceive the world when you learn and you move into language study. So language study. Second, philosophy. And we require our students to uh, study the Vedas, the Upanishads, the primary texts of Sankhya and yoga. And we usually do Vedanta studies through the prism of the Yoga Vasishta. And the Yoga Vasishta, a great inspiration for Kashmir Shaivism, is uh, a later sort of um, aggregate 10th, 11th century text in a narrative frame that is just so beautiful and so delightful. So that um, study is foundational and they also do a full course on Buddhism, Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana. They do a full course usually taught in India on Jain traditions and they learn the principles and practices, the worldview, the cosmology, the ethics of Jainism and the applications thereof. They also do a full semester in comparative mysticism. So they learn the uh, Christian ecological vision that has emerged with Laudato Si. 
They learn the great poetry and the inspiration for the poetry of Rumi. They read William James and they read Carl Jung so that they can learn to think about how to engage the world symbolically, bringing up stuff from the unconscious to the conscious realm, and then through dreams, being able to pay attention to those important moments that rise up from the collective unconscious. And they also pay fairly close attention to the physicality of yoga. And some, again, specialize in yoga therapy, but they learn about asana, they learn about bones, they learn about fascia, they learn the names of body parts, they learn about the energetics of chakras and pranayama. And they also do a full semester study of Hatha Yoga texts. And the Hatha Yoga texts like the Garanda Samhita and the Hatha Yoga Pradipika are the texts most closely aligned with what we have come to know as modern postural yoga today. And we give students direct access to those primary sources. So language, philosophy, body and history and sociology. People need to know the good stuff and they need to really be aware of a history that often has a dark side. And what uh, we do is prepare people to know that little narrative that I shared to know about yogis who have gone rogue and have been hurtful to people. And we equip them with this knowledge not to denigrate yoga, but we feel a responsibility for people to have their radar up. P.T. Barnum said there's a sucker born every minute and someone's gonna make money or take advantage. So keep your radar up. And then at the same time, some of these people will just in the course of their yoga life become very powerful people for them to be reminded that you must not violate ahimsa, satya, asteya, brahmacharya, aparigraha, and bring dignity to this tradition as you go forward and teach. Another component that has been quite beautiful for our undergraduate student body is students are given the opportunity to teach yoga to undergraduates. And there's nothing quite as um, helpful to an 18 to 22 year old and to have a yoga class to go to that isn't about looking good, but it's about what's going on inside. And we've developed a curriculum. We're doing longitudinal studies, uh, anxiety, depression. These are really so pervasive. And college has become a pressure cooker where in the old days, for old people like me, you went to college to have fun and explore. And these kids are just like, oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. Mommy says this. Daddy says that. And they just, oh, my friends are doing this. and so I better do that. And it's a way for them to just sort of have a place, a safe space. And a great tool and have um, heard so many good stories about how this has really helped people to get mooring as they move forward in life.
So there's so much about what you said that resonates with and relates to my own particular path. And I have a question for you. Um, the question is one of both intellectual curiosity as well as a question that pertains to what such a one as myself can or should do. And they, you know, I'm sort of formulating it as we're going along in my brain, but the, you know, the thought that comes to mind is, you know, uh, this uh, program, this, this sort of this, this immersive, transformative, uh, rigorous haven that you've created is certainly needed en masse in our times, particularly of a certain generation. I've had so many conversations with people over the years um, along the lines of undergrads not being fed the way they need to, particularly undergrads who come to study religion. At the same time, obviously, we're not working primarily in a confessional setting. And obviously, uh, if I was an instructor in a religious studies course or professor, it is not my responsibility to spiritually cater to um, uh, my students. Uh, and yet, there's something in between. You know, I've, come, I've rubbed up against this snag throughout my own education, throughout my teaching. Um, continuing studies is near and dear to my heart because people can come with an interest uh, and learn in a rigorous, responsible, sensible way. But they're there for some kind of life transformation, some kind of impact, some kind of, they're, on, they're, they're on a journey and they're open to that journey and they're voluntarily seeking out a way to advance their journey, even yeah. in the sake of uh, intellectual growth. Um, and so we have this, this, this issue, this problem, this problem of education being informative versus transformative. And then we have this lovely little haven that you've built, lovely for those who will be interested in such and, and, and agree with folks like you and I, there's a need for such. But then what about, uh, what about the rest? What about, um, you know, the question almost is like, if you could wave a wand, what would intro Indian religion look like at, at uh, you know, at, at the typical um, community college or, or university or, or liberal arts college, what would that look like? What would, what would someone teaching a course do differently or, or, or you, you get a sense of, of what I'm asking, I think, and then I'll, I'll, I'll flesh out why that pertains explicitly to my path uh, after you've responded. Right. Well, what we evolved in Los Angeles, which I know literally can be done in any community in the United States now, the study of world religions, we tie directly to Los Angeles. And the students, again, engaged learning, are required to go out into the community. And I've sort of pre-tested a whole range of different experiences. And they, in the beginning of the semester, have to go to a yoga center, a Hindu temple, a Buddhist temple, Jain center. And they are given a list of questions to respond to and they need to participate in a service. And then in the middle part of the class, they go to some church that is not their normal denomination or to a synagogue or 
to a mosque. And again, the same questions, you know, who are the people showing up? What are the foundational teachings here? What is the history? What is the origin story of this place? And what do you observe? What do you hear? What do you see? What do you smell? Are you given food? Okay, all of those are ways of really broadening the horizons of the students. And their project involves reflecting on living faith. And I remember I had one student who drove up to the Shillai Temple, which is the, not too far from here, but it's the largest Buddhist complex in the Western Hemisphere. And it's magnificent. It's a Taiwanese founder and they have a university, they have a burial ground, they have a library and they have shrine after shrine after shrine, literally 10,000 Buddhas in the main hall. And drove up into the parking lot and just went into a rage against all things religious and wrote the most eloquent essay that got a total A and the student never stepped out of the car. Okay, the level of rage and his critique was just so remarkable, so fun. So I think that inviting our students to know where they live, having them do really geography, both in the sense of geological awareness, like where am I on the tectonic plate? And here in Southern California, we straddle two tectonic plates, which is a whole other thing. And who are the people that live here? In every community throughout America, even Western Iowa. I know a course like this is taught and they have Buddhist communities, they have Hindu gatherings, they have a synagogue, they have a mosque. And this is the invitation for our students to learn about who they are by understanding the ways of other people. Yeah, I will say that um, when I have taught credit courses at universities, um, the field trips the two times come to mind. Once in Calgary, uh, there's a popular Hinduism course, but more recently at Ryerson, which is essentially downtown Toronto, we took a trip to uh, the Hare Krishna temple. Yeah. And it was fascinating. If you want to learn about traditional puja or arti, great. If you want to learn about new religious movements, great. If you want to learn about the colonial... Uh, the response, you know, the encounter between India and colonial critique, great. If you, you know, there's so many dimensions, uh, philosophy and sectarian divides within Hinduism, great. And so, but but even those who weren't, um, of various bents, everyone said they really appreciated seeing and having a sense. It's like a light bulb went off. And yeah. more than once I've had the comment, that I wish we could do this for every religion. Right? Yeah, we, 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 we require our students to do it and we don't always take them. We equip them with the tools so they become their own self-organizers. We put them into groups and they have to figure out and go forward. Well, this is, um, you know, I, I promised to indicate uh, sort of what, what's at stake for me or why this is so important. And, you know, I've, this is, I've taught continuing studies at the University of Toronto. This will be my 10th year, probably my last. Uh, I'm starting to teach continuing studies online through uh, the Oxford Centre of Hindu Studies. 
Um, and, you know, I still do wish to impact undergrads and hope the day will come when I can do so in a more systematic way. And at the same time, I feel like I'm on this sort of journey of learning how to do that, learning from what's just beyond academic training in terms of the ways in which we can enrich um, undergraduate journeys. Um, so in my case, there's so much of your earlier story I didn't want to interrupt, as is my habit on this podcast. I like folks to sort of finish their thought. You never know what's going to come. Um, but your journey, is, there are so many parallels in that um, alongside my academic training, I trained for, for 12 years with a master who was my predecessor in the lineage that I'm part of. It's an esoteric lineage. It looks at Indian texts and Indian philosophies um, with an eye to the transformation of consciousness. Uh, with an eye to, to various um, attainments, various undertakings. And it's a part of self, you know, if I'm teaching intro Hinduism, I mean, mention Yoga Sutras, right? Mm-hmm. You know, teach it the way one would teach about a text uh, historically. Um, but none of the literally hundreds of hours of one-on-one exposition on the actualization of the text. None of that enters the discourse. I'm certain it informs my being or my presentation in some way, shape or form, but there is this parambara lineal training that's part of me that I don't feel is appropriate to do, obviously at a university. And much of it has to be sort of initiate and esoteric and pending the readiness of the student and, and the like. But nevertheless, it really feels to me that I'm called to move forward uh, in some sort of hybrid space. And so uh, spaces like what the Oxford Center are trying to do with public engagement, uh, spaces like what uh, you, you're accomplishing, accomplishing in terms of uh, transformative education, um, it seems to me that all of these initiatives are ahead of a curve or at the ahead of a curve that the academy, the academy, in my view, will necessarily have to fold back in for its own sort of um, health and perhaps even survival. I don't know if this makes any sense to you. I'm sort of speaking in yeah. abstract terms. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so it's fascinating. I mean, I, I, in a different time and place, uh, the, 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 the master of, 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 of yoga studies would just I would be a kid in a candy store, right? That would have been a delightful experience, as I'm sure as it is for any of the folks who, who are interested in it and register in it. Um, I think we're close to time today. I believe you have a, an appointment coming up after this. Um, so we'll have you back to speak about your scholarship and uh, your recent publication in particular. That'll be a lot of fun. Is there anything else you wanted to say about, uh, it seems today we focused on sort of uh, pedagogy and this, this sort of, educational transformation that you're you're part of is there anything you want to say about that before we close i just want to affirm the value of continuing ed and to also encourage you to not discount the effect of a professor in the classroom And I say this for a couple of different reasons, and it happens randomly. But I remember running into someone, and he was a photographer, and it turned out he'd graduated from LMU many, many years before. 
we kept on talking and I asked, because all of our students have to do two courses in theology, religious studies. And, oh, who did you have? He said, I don't remember who I had. I said, well, what did you study? And he said, well, it changed my life. And I really remember learning about the, the Atman, the self and the Upanishads and this quiet place. And, and I've led my whole, you know, I've built myself out from that ever since. And sure enough, I went back and looked in the log and sure enough, he was in the class and it had nothing to do with me. I mean, I looked somewhat different, but not totally different. But it was so affirming that you just never know who has affected you and you don't ever really know who you will affect. So although it may not look like a formal transmission, I also have a healthy skepticism about all the institutionalism that arises and part of it is just market economy around the institution of what it takes to be spiritual. And, you know, the, um, just all of the trappings sometimes are essential for when they're needed, but you don't have to operate within those parameters, those very tradition institutional bound parameters to make a difference. So no, that, that really was, thank you for sharing that. That really resonates with, um, much student feedback uh, and thinking in particular the credit courses you know you really have no clue how much of an impact a class or a lecture can be and then you you hear these things and you're like this is incredible and oftentimes we're just the messenger right for something that yeah. someone may need yeah. to hear in the moment um this is great uh education is obviously very important to me so this is fascinating i'm going to dive more deeply into the into your master's uh, program. I think there's a few students that I have around that they probably would uh, be very much interested in in uh, immersing yeah, themselves. Yeah, lots of, lots of good Canadians have come south for it, and it's so delightful to welcome. My father is Canadian, so I have a great um, affection and connection up there. Lovely. Um, it's it is it is a an extraordinary space. It's a Toronto in particular, I really enjoy living yeah. in Toronto these days. It's very textured. It's it's slightly under lockdown still, <laughs> but, oh, yeah. but there, yeah. as it should be, being a probably the fourth largest city in North America. But uh, it's it's a lovely place to live for sure. Um, you know, it, it, as I said, I've taken enough of your time for one day. I really appreciate you making the time to appear on the podcast. The podcast um, is is including more. Um, uh, more broadly, uh, Jain studies, Sikhism, Islam in India, because there isn't another channel for these programs. And we are, um, we are um, looking to broaden out and speak to thought leaders and talk about, quote unquote, new developments in Hindu studies, along with new books. So it has been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Take good care. Until next time, keep reading, keep listening, stay safe.